Father, how we thank you. How we confess joyfully before you that you are sovereign over all. That we, that we celebrate that great and biblical truth. That so many times from our perspective, our world seems completely out of control, and yet it is not. That you are sovereign over all, and you're working out all things according to the purpose of your own will. Whether you have ordained pleasant circumstances for our lives, or whether you have ordained for us great adversity and great difficulty, we can trust you in all of these things because you have promised, you have determined, and you have proven that you're able to work all of these things for our good and for your glory. May we celebrate all of these great truths until the very day that we see you and that we fully comprehend indeed the entirety of your greatness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, if you will. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 22. Again, the book of Acts, chapter 22, and verse 22. It's always interesting to me the things that I plan for a worship service, that is, selecting the texts and so forth, and of course, preparing to preach them. And of course, uh, Drew is quite aware. Uh, we plan weeks in advance. Here's where I'll be on this Sunday. Here, here's where I'll be on that Sunday. Here, here's kind of the, uh, the pace that we're going uh, to set. And then much of the balance of the service, he plans and puts into place. And of course, he planned our music for today. Now, one of the things that I noticed, and of course uh, uh, you, you noticed Tim and Jessica leading us today and doing it beautifully, but one of the things that, that I noticed, because typically when we're singing or when you call or ask me, have you heard of, and you call out a book or a song or whatever, usually the first thing I ask is, well, who wrote it? And there are certain names that if you tell me, well, they wrote it, and, I, and I'm not a book burner. I mean, I've got some terrible books in my possession, okay, because I just have kind of a moral revulsion to throwing away books or book burnings or things like that. But at least metaphorically, you might call a name and say, you need to throw it in the trash because it's not worth reading. But there are books that you say, well, this guy wrote it. And I said, well, you need to, I think you can have a high degree of confidence in what it's wrote. And, and so in the same vein, when these songs are portrayed on our screen, you can look in the lower left-hand corner, and it will tell you who wrote it. Okay? And over here in the left-hand corner this morning, those, the guys who wrote that song are Joseph and Tim Dumas. And... I, I love preparing and preaching sermons. It's really easy, 
you got this big old book to go by. I mean, you know, how tough can it be? I mean, it's already, it's already written down for you. All you got to do is read it. But to write a song that faithfully and accurately confesses biblical truth and to make it singable and, and, and to make it that which we enjoy hearing it, Kind of amazes me. I, I just have to tell you that. Uh, it's just one of those things. And so uh, we, we give thanks because it, it allows us, because I think, as I've told you many times before, we don't choose songs because it's got a good beat and I can dance to it, okay? This ain't American Bandstand. If you don't know what American Bandstand was, Google it, okay? I know all of my cultural references are completely out of date, as I am, thankfully. But... Uh, but we sing them because they allow us as a congregation to say what we should be saying to God as the people that by His sovereign grace, according to the exercise of His mercy and His power, has saved us. And we ought to get excited about that. And we ought to sing it well and sing it with joy in our hearts. Now that was free, okay? Now this is what you paid for. Again, Acts 22, verse 22, we'll be reading uh, down into chapter 23 and verse uh, 11 here in just a moment. Now, many of you may be at least a bit like me. That is, you are exasperated, you're frustrated, even angered by the politicians and the bureaucrats and the academics and the media and the business leaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because we live in at least what seems to be an ever darkening world in which the reigning powers, whatever category they happen to be working in, ruling over, the reigning powers are hostile to everything we believe and practice. That, that they oppose everything in regards to biblical truth. And so, to be sure, we are not the first generation of Christians to feel the weight of the culture's hostility. Paul faced a corrupt and failed religious system whose leaders were absolutely dead set on destroying him, his message, and all others who were aligned with him. The civil system was equally corrupt. And while in some ways not as hostile as the Jews were, they were not the friends nor the advocates of this new movement, movement that we call Christianity. Paul would be pressed to his limits for the sake of the gospel, and we should be ever mindful that Jesus promised all who follow him similar adversity. Yet, yet, it's almost a but God there. Yet, the promise of the Good Shepherd remains that He has and always will be with, with us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and 
that we should fear no evil, for he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. He has indeed prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And so let's continue to think about this as we look a little further into Paul's journey to Jerusalem, to jail, and then ultimately uh, to Rome, as we read beginning in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune said, came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, well, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of the people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out, in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and it is with respect to the hope uh, and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away for among them by force and bring them to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Again, let's take a, a quick moment 
to review where we have been. Paul has traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and he's brought an offering to the Jerusalem church uh, from the Gentile churches there in Greece. Upon arrival, the elders report to Paul that their concerns related to what he has taught pertaining to the law and to circumcisions. Uh, the elders counsel him to submit to a, a cleansing ritual at the temple. And we talked about, was that a wise choice? Was it a good choice? Was that something that was uh, certainly uh, according to the will of God? Now, as the ritual was being completed, the Jews start a riot there in the temple. And then Paul is rescued by the Roman cohort stationed adjacent to the temple. And Paul is given the opportunity, explains his conversion and his mission to both the uh, Jewish, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And he gives this testimony uh, before this Jewish mob and the Roman cohort. Now, what follows is a, a description of the interaction between the Jews and the Romans and the adjudication of these disputed matters, a process that's going to take two years uh, out of the, uh, the life of uh, the Apostle Paul. But he is going to go from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, appealing, defending uh, his case and his cause, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we think back about this, the, the Romans tended to be at least relatively benevolent towards conquered people. Now, to be sure, they were still conquered and occupied people. Uh, that's not to say they were omnibenevolent or there weren't seasons of cruelty, oppression, and persecution. However, they understood that happy people were more productive and not as prone uh, to revolt because they were productive they paid taxes, and because they were peaceful, they didn't require constant intervention. So it was very much a policy uh, that wasn't rooted in some kind of deep-seated kindness. It was just practical, pragmatic. It tended to work for them. Now, the Jews had a bit of a, a special dispensation in that because of their intense conviction uh, re regarding the one uh, true God they were not required to recognize the pantheon of God or to, or to confess that Caesar is Lord. That becomes quite a sticking point for them uh, as the story advances. The one thing that Christians can never do is confess any other Lord but our Lord Jesus Christ, either verbally or by our actions. That our ultimate allegiance is always to our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, um, this tolerance was interrupted by riots and threats uh, to the status quo periodically. And, again, uh, the occupation forced, in this case, this Roman cohort stationed there in the temple, uh, uh, they would step in, they would act uh, to, to quell the unrest, the uprising. And again, 
Christians and Jews enjoyed uh, at least modest tolerance on the part of the Roman government until a few years after this incident, six to eight years, depending on how you date all of this, until the reign of Nero. So that's where we are, kind of historically and contextually, both from our, our biblical text and Uh, again, from what was going on uh, in that day. So the first thing we want to look at, beginning back in verse 22, is Paul before the Romans. We're going to Paul before the Romans, Paul before the Jews, Paul before the Lord. Kind of an easy outline uh, here uh, today. Now, they're willing to listen to Paul up until a point And then when he begins to speak about his uh, unique mission, uh, his unique encounter, his life-changing encounter uh, with the risen Lord, they're shouting, they're screaming, we got to kill this guy. And so if you'll remember, Paul had written in Romans chapter 15, urging the Christians at Rome to pray that he would be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Now, remember, he's writing to the Romans and saying, you know, I expect to come, but I've got some things I've got to do first. I'm going to do this business of gathering this offering. I'm going back to Jerusalem. Uh, I I want to take this offering, and I want to be there uh, for Pentecost uh, there in Jerusalem. But as we, we think about this request, how can a man that's inspired to write sacred scripture An apostle, in a sense, functioned as a prophet. In other words, he knew that which was going to happen and that which was not going to happen. Not necessarily infinitely, but he knew, again, a good bit about what was coming uh, his way in terms of uh, kind of world affairs. And so he makes this request, and it's recorded as inspired in Scripture. Pray for me so I'll be delivered. But guess what? He wasn't delivered at least initially, uh, from these unbelievers in Judea. That, that there is a, and in my view, the word mystery gets overused in the church a lot of times. In other words, anytime we get into a difficult subject, well, that's a mystery, I just don't understand. I mean, we just shut it down. No, oh, it's a mystery, I don't understand. It's a mystery, I don't understand. And I think many times we can, we can push a little harder on things than that. But, but there really is a bit of a, a, a mystery between the interface of God's sovereign plan and the prayers of his saints. We're commanded to petition and, and, to, and to intercede. And yet what? Our sovereign God has already determined all things according to the counsel of his own will. Even in the unfavorable providence that Paul was in, God was working for the good of the Apostle Paul, the good of the church, the advance of the gospel, the glory of God. God's good plan was for Paul and is for us the plan that God decreed before the world was created. Is good for, it is for good and not for evil. The plan was and is to give to us a future hope. That present and future hope is our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not mistake that biblical promise for something along the lines of what? Your best life now. That's not what it means, okay? So, 
God's plan is always inclusive of both the ends and the means. The command to pray and our actual prayers are part of the means through which God carries out the purpose of His will. To be sure, as the prophet Isaiah wrote, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, uh, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. God, again, is over and above us. He is infinitely more wise, more powerful, more sophisticated than we are. And He knows what He is doing. The secret things indeed belong to God. There are things we simply do not know. But we can be sure. As you're sitting here today, please hear me when I say this. We can be sure that God has surveyed and approved every circumstance in every situation. And so we need to reflect on that. Now, does that mean that we just float through life? Another cultural reference here, folks. You'll have to, some of you young folks have to look it up. Do we go through life singing, que Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. There's nothing, can't remember now, lost, I can't remember. I used to hear it on the Doris Day show though, okay? So, is there nothing left for us to do? Well, interestingly enough, and I don't know why this came to me, but how do you live life? How do you go about your, and I use this word business in a broad sense. I'm not necessarily talking about economic, commercial type things. I'm talking about Living your life, the business of, of being a mom or being a dad or being or whatever you are. I'm talking about living your life. How do we live our lives before a God that is sovereign over our flat tires, over our crying babies, over our dirty laundry? Whatever the case is, those things are there according to God's good purpose. But we are to go about facing those things filled with the Spirit of God and taking advantage of biblical wisdom. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, and you don't have to turn there, but if you'll remember the story of Nehemiah, build the wall. Build the wall. And... The wall was being built under difficult circumstances. They were being imposed by their own people and those that were not their people. They were being imposed internally and externally. And God said, this is what I want you to do. You're going to build the wall. In other words, he didn't just go, you know what, guys, y'all need a wall. Here, I put a bow on it for you. Go unwrap your new wall. He told them to go build the wall. But how did he tell them? When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and again, the people of God had enemies. Y'all don't know this. I'm going to ruin your day. If you're a people of God, you've got enemies. Okay? And if you don't know that, you're not paying attention. Okay? So, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work, 
from that day on, half of the servants worked on construction, and the other half held spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall, and those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon uh, with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built it. And so again, there was the confidence that God was going to fight the battle for them, but they must fight the, fight the battle as well, and they must do it in the wisdom uh, that God uh, provided and to be prepared to face with biblical wisdom a very hostile culture, very great enemy. And so we don't sit back and just say, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. We take advantage of the weapons of our warfare. Now, again, I, I'm not suggesting that it's normative for the Christians of this day in, in our nation to need to actually arm ourselves to do that which God has called us to do. Now, y'all know me well enough. I'm, I'm all about the guns, okay? Have, all, have as many as you can possibly afford and the ammunition to shoot in them, okay? I, I'm, I'm all for it, okay? And shoot them often. But at least at this juncture, for the most part, our weapon, or the spiritual weapons that God has provided of his word and with prayer, okay? And so again, there is the analogy. We go and we're prepared, but we need to understand that as of right now, as it's always been, we're, we're carrying out our duties in the face of the enemy. We're in a hostile territory. So, this, now, we see here this murderous intent. I mean, the crowd was not content to, to beat Paul to a bloody pulp. I mean, it just wasn't enough. They, they demanded that he be executed. They were out of control. They were fanned into a, a murderous uh, frenzy, and they had drawn blood. And like a wild animal, the sight and the smell of that blood made them want more blood, and the only thing that was going to satisfy them was to carry out the murder of Paul. And so uh, the, the, the tribune is, is going to step in because, again, remember, his job is you can't let these Jews riot. You're not productive in the economy. If you're not productive in the economy, there can't be a profit made. If there can't be a profit made, taxes can't be paid. And so you keep things under control there, okay? It's kind of the, 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 kind of the Roman system of thought. And so this Roman uh, tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks because he's such a nice guy, and he's so concerned for the well-being of, of, of Paul, and, and, he, and he, he wants justice to be done. Now, we're going to beat him. We're going to bring him in. We're going to beat him to within an inch of his life. That's how merciful the Roman tribune was. That, that, that it was normative for that day that if you wanted to examine someone and get the truth out of them, well, you beat them within an inch of their life, and they'd probably tell you uh, the truth. This wasn't the first time for Paul. Again, he recounts in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he had already received uh, 40 lashes less one five times. He had been beaten with rods three times, and he had been stoned 
once. But he knew that God was faithful. It didn't slow this guy down. And again, my mind went to that day long before Paul's day. When that young future king stood among those lily-livered Jews who were scared to death of the giant Goliath, and when questioned and, and ridiculed about his willingness to go fight the giant, he said, what? Wait a minute. I've been guarding my daddy's sheep for years. And my God has already delivered me from the lion and the bear. I know the faithfulness of my God. What's a giant to my God? What's that? What? It's just another victory waiting to be accomplished. And so, as he's being stretched out there in uh, verse 25, the centurion that's actually going to carry out the flogging, and again, don't just think of this as something benign. This is something that would almost kill. In fact, it did kill many people. It's what Jesus was subjected to prior to his uh, crucifixion. Uh, a person's back would have been so ripped apart that even internal organs and the spine uh, was often exposed because of the metal, the glass, and so forth that was embedded in those wooden thongs and wooden uh, straps. And so, while this is about to take place, Paul asked the question, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Which, of course, got the centurion's attention. So Paul is, is ready to utilize the political and judicial processes, the protections to his advantage. Now, we shouldn't depend on this process, but we should be aware of how we can work these types of things to our advantage. And our advantage being what? Not our own good, but the advantage of the proclamation, of the advance of the gospel. Paul is quite clear. He was willing uh, to die in his service for Christ. He's willing to use every tool in his, at his disposal uh, to live. But for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. So again, he was willing to take advantage of this. It was something that he was aware of. And as we'll see in a moment, he is strategic about applying this in his case. Now, it's interesting, it's ironic uh, to, to a large degree, in fact. Uh, the Romans had really no connection with the Old Covenant, the Jewish laws. And the Jews had the greatest system of justice known to man because God gave it to them, okay, to, to carry out within a theocracy. And because of sinful men, it had become distorted, it had become per perverted, the system uh, was corrupt, and yet, so here are the pagan Romans, okay, who do not know God, but because of general and natural revelation, their, their system had some sense of justice in it, and Paul goes to the godless Gentiles to secure a measure of justice for, uh, for himself. And again, we need to be careful, you know, that we're, we're not looking to the godless for our deliverance, but we also should be remembered that God is God, 
and he can deliver us through any means that he chooses to deliver us. And so uh, Paul utilized what was that available uh, to him. And what we know that maybe Paul wasn't fully aware of, that it's through his engagement in the Roman legal process, that would be how he would get to Rome. Remember, he said, I'm, I, I want to come to Rome. Uh, his plan was not to come there in custody of the Roman government. But that was God's plan. I mean, if you want to talk to powerful people within a government, we'll get arrested. You can at least talk to a judge somewhere along the way, right? Okay. And so, again, Paul's going to be given the privilege of speaking uh, to the highest of the uh, Gentile uh, rulers. And he's going to make his case for the truthfulness of the gospel, and that also it wasn't a threat to the Roman Empire. He wanted the Romans to see that the, the church, uh, that the gospel is not about political upheaval. Now, I made the statement here, the gospel is not a threat to the Roman Empire. And I, again, it I wrote that, and I, and I came back to it. Is that true or false? Well, remember this. The gospel is always opposed to all that is not the gospel. The gospel is always opposed to all that oppose God's people. The gospel is always opposed to those who that would set themselves up as God and deny the one true God. And so, in a very real way, the gospel was, and the gospel is, and the gospel always will be a threat to all that stands in the way of the gospel. Now, he, he knew the gospel could change the course of that entire empire, and that would have been great. He would desire that people would be saved, and because they were converted, the, the way that they lived in the world would change uh, greatly. But he also knew that until the day he was executed, he was going to proclaim the gospel. He was going to exhaust every measure to gain his freedom. But trust me, he knew this, and we should too. Proverbs 21.1, that the heart of the king and all of the king's agents, all of his bureaucrats, all of his minions, all of his lackeys, whatever you want to call them, the heart of the king were as channels of water in the hands of God. He turned them whichever way he wished. He knew, as Daniel had written in chapter 2 of his book, that God changes the seasons and establishes kings and kingdoms, and that his God was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He knew and thought as those long before he had lived, as they stood before the fiery furnace. Our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, you can forget about us bowing the knee before you. Now, God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in a very temporal way, okay? 
But you know what? What if God had said, you know, you're just going to burn up in there for my glory? Would he have been unfaithful? No. They would have been delivered. He would have proven himself faithful. Right? So, now, verse 28 in response to Paul's statement regarding citizenship, he, he goes, well, I, I bought my citizenship. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, and again, I, I think there's some, kind of some unusual things going on there. You know, wait a minute, you're a Jew. How did you get to be a Roman citizen? Then he thought, well, gosh, I bribed a local official and got mine. Gosh, he'd do well. No, I'm not going to say that. Backing off, backing off. Okay. But yeah, and again, it, again, the corruptness of, of, of the Roman Empire, don't, don't think of it as, again, benevolent and uh, having high moral standards uh, during the reign of Claudius. Uh, it was a known fact that you could buy citizenship. And in fact, we find out in the next chapter, this guy's name was Claudius, Claudius, Claudius Lysias. Again, he, named, he, he took a name in honor of the guy that he bribed, ultimately, to get his citizenship. So, Again, uh, the tribune recognizes this, knows that he's got a serious problem. If this guy's a Roman citizen, uh, we, we, we almost made what, in essence, uh, would be uh, a fatal mistake by usurping and denying uh, the rights of a Roman citizen. So here's what he does, verse 30. He takes him to the council, the, the Sanhedrin is, is who he's going to take him uh, to. Now, It's, it's not, again, it's not, it's not as though he's got the highest uh, moral virtue in mind. I'm just a, a seeker of truth. It's just, I, I got to solve this thing. Somebody's going to pay for this, and there's not going to be any more of these riots on my watch. So let's just go back and see uh, what uh, uh, the Sanhedrin says about this particular guy. It is interesting. John MacArthur notes but according to Scripture, this is the fifth time that this council had been presented with the gospel. Now, that's over 30 years, okay? Jesus being one of the ones that presented uh, the gospel. But it's interesting. They, 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 they have heard the truth, and they remain hardened in their uh, rebellion uh, against God. And so uh, the Sanhedrin was thoroughly perverted, thoroughly corrupted, thoroughly useless, in the pursuit of justice. Well, let's look at Paul uh, before uh, the Jews. We've already said that uh, the Jews were granted a certain measure of uh, uh, kind of self-management. Uh, uh, the Romans would, would let them decide certain cases under certain, uh, in certain jurisdictions. They had a kind of a measure of autonomy there. And so uh, they would let them solve this religious problem in their religious uh, courts. So Paul, there in verse 1 of chapter 23, he looks, and notice they're looking intently at the council. He's not bowed. He's looking them in the eye. Now I know you think you're something. I know you think you're in charge but you're not, okay? And, and so he looks at them, and he begins to tell his story, and he 
makes this claim, and it, I'm not going to have time to explore it as much as I would like, but he makes a statement that he's lived his life before God in all good conscience up to that day. Now, what in the world do you mean by that? Because he would tell us in 1 Timothy, persecutor, insolent, blasphemer, violent man, chief of sinners. How can you say, now as a Christian, that I've lived in good conscience? And I think what he is making the statement of is that at one time, as a faithful Jew, he was faultless as men, as men observed one another as they thought about their utilization of the law in contemporary Judaism, that he was faultless in that regard. And now, having experienced the fulfillment of all of the promises made under the old covenant, he certainly stood before them with a good conscience. That, that he, he indeed was actually the faithful Jew. You, you are members of this elite council. You think that you're loyal and faithful Jews, but I'm here to tell you, I am a faithful Jew, and you're actually going to be condemned because you do not understand everything that was, that was designed in the older covenant. The law, the prophets, the sacrificial system was all designed to do what? point to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he makes uh, that, that statement, and again, it's one of those things that you could get kind of crazy with, but everybody has a conscience, but it's not totally reliable, okay? Sometimes it works pretty well. In the case of Nazi Germany, not so much. You follow what I'm saying? In, in the case of those that would murder the unborn, doesn't work so well. In the case of politicians that think that we have to stand for women's reproductive rights, that it is a matter of conscience for them. It's not working too well in their case. Okay? That, that our, can't, our, our conscience, kind of like a, a compass, you know, you have a compass and they say, it's pointing north, let's go that way. And there's certain things that can throw a compass off. And your conscience can be thrown off. And so him saying all of this, they hit him in the mouth, which is, again, a violation of their own law and really a picture of, of where uh, they are. Why was he struck? Well, they thought of him as being blasphemous, that he was undermining and misleading the people of God. He was dismantling the law of God, desecrating the temple of God, that threefold indictment we saw last week. His claim of a good conscience was an offense to their self-righteous sensibilities. And remember that when self-righteousness is confronted with true righteousness, it typically reacts violently. So, Paul's response, and I think, I think he's angry. He said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That wasn't a real nice thing to say to somebody. It was true, but it wasn't necessarily the nice thing to say. What is he saying? You're like a wall with a cheap veneer that will not stand the test of time. It, it's going to show the dirt underneath. And your moral filth is showing through the thin veneer of religiosity that you have 
proclaimed. And so, he is rebuked there in chapter, in verse 4. Would you revile the high priest? To which Paul responded, and this is an interesting response. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of your ruler. So he quotes from Exodus. He, he is obedient to the law recognizes that there should be a certain respect. But why didn't he recognize this guy? And there's a lot of interesting theories. Mine is he'd been beaten so badly his eyes were swollen shut that he just couldn't see well enough. Uh, but there are others, and, and some think that this is really good, that what he was saying was, you're such a vile person that I can't believe they let you be the high priest. I don't know exactly why, but for whatever reason, uh, he, he, he responds to him, and again, he, he uh, in a sense, apologizes because it is technically a violation of the law. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 6, Paul's strategic testimony is calculating what? He knew that who he was talking to was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And they had a lot of disagreements. The Sadducees were the ancient liberals denying the resurrection, denying the supernatural, uh, accepting only the Pentateuch. Pharisees were the more conservative group. They accepted uh, the, the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, again, sets them against one another by doing what? He says, I'm here today. I'm on trial today because of the resurrection of the dead. And so they get to disputing. It's, it's strategic and it's a, kind of a divide and conquer. Or you've heard it said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? And so, again, we see him very uh, strategic in going uh, uh, about this. And so at, at this point, uh, they, they, they are arguing. Uh, they, they cannot come to any consensus and verse 10, the tribune realizes that uh, he must step in and rescue uh, Paul once again. The vitriol, the venom, and the violence we see there really does remind me of what we see today. Go to an abortion clinic and make a statement regarding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sanctity of human life, of the reality of the one dwelling in the womb of a woman is an image bearer of God and deserving of life. I have seen some of the most vile responses from abortion advocates and threats against those that would stand uh, for uh, the truth. Paul spoke the truth. They got vile. They got vicious. We're seeing it in our day. Go, I'll try to speak as euphemistically as I can, go to a rainbow pride parade and object to their vile displays. That which in any, any sensible situation, people would be arrested immediately for doing these things. And yet these things are defended. I, I uh, was sent uh, a video uh, uh, yesterday morning. David Albright sent it. A young man in, in Wisconsin. 
not California, not New York, Wisconsin, who was reading the Bible at one of these parades, and they arrest him for reading his Bible in one of these parades. And I mean, he spoke wisely and eloquently to the city council in this matter. And so again, evil will always react in this way. Go. I, don't, I hope this is not true of our local situation, but I see it played out seemingly on a weekly basis at a national level. Go to an athletic association and protest that there are boys that want to play in girls' sports. Go say that that is not right, that that, that is ludicrous, that that is insane, and see the vicious pushback. And you will be labeled as intolerant and insensitive and doing hate speech and harm speech and all, 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 of, all of this. You know. I, and I, I've mentioned this before, and I, I've got to move and, and, and but I can't, I can't help but say, I, I, I noticed that, I think it was this week, the NCAA fined Tennessee chump change, eight million bucks. I mean, you know, just take it out of petty cash. And they suspended a former coach for like eight years, okay, for violations. Violations of what? You are representatives, you are a coalition of organizations that say repeatedly and emphatically, there's no such thing as objective truth, there's no such thing as transcendent reality, there's no such thing as right and wrong. In fact, that which we used to think was vice is now a virtue. So how can you find anybody? How can you say something is wrong? My own beloved Auburn University has a player or several players suspended because of something that went on when in their classrooms they're saying there's no such thing as objective right or wrong. So how can you suspend people from school when your school says there's no such thing as right and wrong? The insanity of this, the duplicity, the double standard Evil is irrational and it's ultimately insane. And we see it being played out. We were able to go earlier this week, Ellen and I did, and I hope we can do this for our church, to have a showing of the movie that John MacArthur's church put out called The Essential Church. It'll shock you as to what the government was trying to do, okay, and how they fought it. And they fought it strategically, and I, I don't have time to get into the, to the details. But here, ultimately, their strategy was twofold. They appealed to the Constitution, which sometimes gets you a little traction, sometimes not so much. But you know what I believe the winning strategy was? They pushed this thing so far that the government, particularly the local government, the Los Angeles government, county and city, they did not want to have to go into court and reveal all of the shenanigans and the entirety of the agenda that they were trying to work out to shut down churches. They did not want to be exposed. Not because they were embarrassed, I don't believe. I think, I think they made a calculated decision. Now's not the time 
to display, to show all of our cards because we're going to keep them close to our vest because we're going to play this card again. We're going to shut down churches again. Now, I heard this week, I don't know if this is going to be the case or not, but here's one that's likely to come. We're in a climate emergency. And we're going to have to force everyone to stay home if you drive your car, you're going to use fossil fuels, and that's going to raise the temperatures, and you're going to, because we love our neighbors, everybody's going to stay home in a hot house because you're not going to run the air conditioning burning fossil fuels. Oh, oh no, 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 we're going to run our air conditioning. That may not happen, but it, it sure looks like that's one. And I told you before, this whole mess with the COVID, I, I don't know if it was from the beginning conceived this way, but it was certainly a trial run as it played out to see how to control people and how to scare them and force them. And, even, and again, the church was far too complicit and too weak because, again, our Lord says what? You gather. And one of the upshots out of this is what? Caesar is not our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord, and to Him we owe our ultimate allegiance. Well, Paul before the Lord, final thing. The Lord appears and gives him this message, and to be sure, it was not that, Paul, you've messed up, now I've got a plan B, I've got to rethink this thing. No, you take courage, because guess what? You're, you're on the fast track to go to Rome, which is where I, I, I was going to send you. And so many people think that Paul was despairing in these dire and diabolically conceived and executed circumstances. Possibly he was. But however, many of the great men of God have doubted in the valley of despair. Moses, David, Elijah, the great reformer Martin Luther, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century Charles Spurgeon suffered occasions of doubt and despair. And it is possible that Paul needed this supernatural encounter to renew his strength. However, this is the man that had already written. And like many of us, maybe he needed a reminder. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, even more so as the day draws near, because we do it to remind one another and encourage one another of things such as this, that which Paul had already written, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love the Lord, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. We know what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us. He would later write that God is the one who works things according to the counsel of His own will. And much later, at the close of his life, he would write this, at my, defense, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly home. To Him be the glory forever and ever. That is a promise that's true for each and every child of God. You might say, 
Well, I need the Lord to appear to me as he did to Paul. I need him to deliver me as he did Peter or audibly speak to me as the prophets of old. I understand that. But what is more sure, a vision or an appearance or a voice or a sign from heaven or his sure word, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age. His word that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's life illustrated the truth of the gospel, the power of the Spirit, and the good providence of, of God. God's promises are true. His word is certain. His presence is real. His provision is sufficient. And his plan for Paul and for us and for the ages is perfect. And what is his plan? His plan is this, and it is being worked out. That one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All those who reviled and all of those who persecuted will make that great confession. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word to us. We thank you that in a, a world that's genuinely and truly full of things that discourage us, that things that concern us, things that we need to speak against, to fight against, things that we may need to suffer uh, as we oppose them. Uh, Lord, we are rightly concerned. But Lord, we know that you are faithful. We know that your gospel is true, that, that this sword of the Spirit is sufficient to pierce the joint and divide the marrow. God, I pray that we would be found faithful for these days ahead, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.